Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 251. I'm your host, Derek Moore. With me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pestricelli. Jay, what's going on today? Derek, I was hoping we could do episode 250 one more time. No? We're going to move on to 151? I think you should see the folder I have. I have 251, <laughs> 250 version 2, for anyone who doesn't know. Yeah, we were ahead, and then, and then we were behind, and I don't know. So this is the real right number, Jay. So that nice. that's good. You know okay. what wasn't real no. though is a there's an article on Yahoo Finance, and they talked about a viral article. So an article that went viral and claimed that 44 percent of homes this year are were being bought by like BlackRock or Invitation Homes, huge huge institutions. Logan. Uh, uh, what is this gentleman's name? Anyway, he wrote a, I'll, I'll put a link to it. Uh, where's his? Motoshami, I think is how you say his last name. So he wrote an article, Jay, and he said not only is the is the 44% totally wrong, meaning we're not seeing all these huge institutions buy up all the houses. It's actually 0. Uh, something like 0.3% was the number. And so really? he referred, yeah. So here's, here's kind of an interesting thing. He broke it down. He showed some data. He breaks them into tiers of investors. So he said a tier four investor who owns a thousand plus properties, 0.3% is what was bought up during, I think, Q2 of uh, 23. That's it. That's it. So all, all these people saying, you know, BlackRock's coming in and buying, you know, $50,000, 50,000 homes and nope. Nope, that's not the case, Jay. Yeah, and w- when you say BlackRock's buying homes, it's like the f- private funds, right? That are ma- or funds managed by large entities like BlackRock are adding real estate to their to their portfolio, right? I mean, they're not. Is, is that what that means, right? I mean, that's the way I interpret it. Yeah, like a like if you, let's say you were running a private equity fund or a hedge fund, and you were going to buy single family homes. Okay, so how many of how many of that is there in the marketplace? And apparently, it's very, very small. Um, in fact, you know the one to nine properties; these are tier one investors. They represent about nineteen point six percent of the the transactions. So, I don't know though. I got to be honest with you: if BlackRock was buying, you know, with the money they have and and the resources, I think if you were renting a single family home from BlackRock, I think you'd be pretty confident that if you had any maintenance issues, they would take care of it, right? I have no idea how the situation is, but that's just my my interpretation. I mean, your landlord is not BlackRock in those scenarios, right? So uh, it's not the way that, that – I don't think that's the way that it works there, Greg. So we, we do business with some folks that run private funds that hold multifamily, you know, uh, multifamily houses in their portfolio, but they're just making investments in the companies that are running those, right, into the actual landlords themselves. I'm fairly certain BlackRock's not a landlord. I mean, I guess you, but by, you know, remove the corporate veil, right, I guess it all passes through eventually. But, you know, that you're not writing to BlackRock telling them that your water heater's out. All right. Well, I thought maybe I'd, I'd talk to, who's the CEO of BlackRock? I'd call him directly and tell him. Yeah, just give that guy, he's on CNBC all the time talking. <laughs> he never talks about having to change somebody's locks and their, no. their, their, uh, their cabinets are, are loose. I think that's just on a broader spectrum, though, uh, a broader point here, Jay, is that 
there's so much stuff on the internet right now, and I'll bet you a lot of it is is not correct. And we see this even you know in our business and just in general, you know, the, the investing side of things that. Anyone can write anything and it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Like there's a lot of bad info that's out there. And some of it's, you know, we talked about the Dave Ramsey thing even, you know, let's not revisit that, you know, the, the whole, oh, you can take out 8% forever, but like 44% and actually it's less than 0.4%. It's like, come on, do better internet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there you go. Question everything you read. I, if anybody <laughs> doesn't know whatever's on the internet is not necessarily true and verified. Hello. But, yes. you know, I will I will say this about this, right? So when you think about the real estate market, right? I mean, I, I of course, like this is, uh, you know, financing a lot of the, the, the thousand plus property owners, right? The tier four investors that own a thousand plus properties, you know, they're financing those acquisitions, right? And this is not the time to be financing acquisitions, right? So just with rates where they are, right? With mortgages where they are. So, I am not surprised that such a small percentage of the properties uh, purchased in uh, Q2 of 2023 are, you know, I'm going to call it institutional type uh, fund purchases. So, yeah, this makes sense, right? It's mostly individuals that are probably forced to do it. Yeah, it, I guess real estate's so interesting. It's it's another like if you go onto YouTube, you can go down dark alleyways of of content, or just you know the crash is coming, the crash is coming, and I'm. I'm speaking personally. I'm not a real estate investor. So uh, these people could have good insights. They might not. But it goes back to what we always say. Imagine going back a year ago and, and you know, interest rates are going to rise. And so mortgages are going to be more expensive. You would have thought housing would have taken at least a, a more of a, a little bit of a tumble, right? No, no, because it's a supply thing. There's, there's not supply. I mean, I talked to real estate agents out here in, in, uh, in Scottsdale, Arizona, and they say, you know, they're hard pressed to get listings. There's nothing because people are holding on to their, their, uh, their low rate mortgages. So it just, it's tough to try and pick, uh, tops, bottoms, entry points and markets. So anyway. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Uh, talking about markets too, Jen, I don't know if you saw that call option trading, uh, who put this out? CBO global, CBOE global markets, uh, looks like I'll call it about 42 million contracts traded call side. I think that's a record according to the CBOE. Jay, uh, this could be a little bit of, we're nearing the old highs in the market. So naturally probably more call buying than, than, uh, uh, at these types of levels, but also people are using derivatives. Call, call you think call buying, Derek? Really? Well, I'm just going out on a limb here. Well, I, I would say, what did we? What have we been doing? Right, we've been selling calls here, right? So, I, by the way, I don't think you're wrong that it's coordinated. It's tied to the the price of the market, right? As markets are going up, calls end up having more activity. But you know, market goes up. To, uh, this isn't, you know, for certain strategies, I should say that we're not across the board shorting the market. Don't get me wrong. But for some of our strategies that sell options, we've been selling the call side, not the put side, haven't we? No, that's right. And and our listeners can't, our listeners cannot see the chart here. There are these uh, sort of spikes that happen. Seem like it's pretty good intervals. I wonder if that is the, the monthly rolls for covered calls that kind of happen there. That could be it too. It could be it could be locking gains. Like let's say you were, 
you know, you were long calls and the market's pressing to a new high and you want to kind of lock your gains and re-hedge. That's a tactic we use as well, right? The, um, right. When, when, you're, when you're using long calls as stock replacement, there is this nice little thing where, uh, right, the, the reason you use that is the most you could lose when you purchase a call is what you paid for that call, right? That's the most you could lose. So it's naturally a hedged position. So if the market really goes down, eh, okay, I can only lose what I pay for the call. But if the market goes up, that call is going to appreciate um, at whatever rate it appreciates along with the market. And so at some point you go, hey, like if I bought a call for 30 bucks and now it's worth $90, I could cover by, I could sell that call and then not cover by, sell that call, make my 60 bucks and turn around and buy a new call for 30 bucks and still be exposed to the market. And then while putting $60 into my pocket, you know, that's a strategy, a tactic we'll use from time to time in the buy and hedge uh, retirement strategy that we run. So, well, so I think you could be right. It could be the rolling at new highs where there's a sell and simultaneous buy because it locks in gains and you put some cash in your pocket and then you're still invested. Um, it could also be tax harvesting, right? Like there's a lot that's kind of going on this time of year as the market's pressing to, uh, to a two-year high. Actually, I think the Dow closed at a new high altogether today, Derek. And not that we follow the Dow often, but I did see that headline go across. Yeah. Congratulations to the Dow. You can get your Dow 3700 hat on and uh, display that with uh, with a lot of confidence, I guess. If You remember that was a deal? <laughs> remember it was like 10,000? 10, 10, Every thousand, there was a new hat. Yes, of course. Of the, course. the people in the NYSE. Every single one of them. Um, I don't doubt he is. He has those. All right. So moving along, Jay, though, you know, the Fed did some stuff this week. They had a little meeting and, uh, you know, they, they, Powell, I think is like, no, we're not talking about lowering rates. You know, then they follow up some of the talking heads from the Fed speakers come out rates, rate cuts. No, no, we're not even talking about that. Uh, I mean, the Fed Funds futures market says March, Jay, March is 62% probability of a quarter point cut in rates. Now, I don't know. We'll see the Fed Funds futures. They move around. The probabilities change, but feels like they're done, at least as far as raising rates, wouldn't you say? Yes. And even they would say they're done, although they have said, well, if the circumstance required, we'd raise again. Blah, blah, um, blah, blah. Yeah. I yeah, know. yeah. But look, they only have two tools, Derek. They could change rates or they could talk about changing rates. So right now they're kind of flexing, you know, that uh, the, the, the the talking part of it. And <laughs> you're blah, blah, blah. What, you think they're not they're disingenuous when they say something? I, I, um, I look. I would say it. It certainly feels like they're done raising rates. CPI was what was CPI this week, right? Because we got that right before the Fed meeting. Slightly good, positive, right? yeah. Slightly, slightly positive, positive, right? So it's, it's retracted. Although I don't, we're not at their two percent target yet. So uh, I do think that they are true to their. That you know they'll continue to follow their guidance, which is you know until we get, we're going to stick to our guns until we can get to the 2% rate. I do think they'll stick to that and they're not there yet. And uh, yes, I, I agree. There was a Fed governor this morning saying that he believed March was uh, a little too soon to consider changing rates. So yeah, but the market is trading as if they're going to. I don't, 
I don't know. Like, what's going to make them do it, Derek? It's, it's. I know we've, we've. It's, it's Groundhog Day when we talk through that. But I don't know what's going to make them change rates. Certainly in March, I don't know what what would cause that. I mean, some weakness in in equities, really. Or I mean, but that's like banks. three months away. You know, like I don't. Four I months know. Away. I don't know. It's close. Uh, nine, you know. So okay. So they the last raise in in ninety five, I think, was March, and by September. They had lowered rates, so that's about what um, six six, six months. September. Yeah. So yeah. when when was the last raise? They did a quarter. When was that, Jay? Uh, July. Then I got to go look back, but it was something like that, right? Yeah. They, did, yeah, they stopped, and then they did the dovish raise. You remember whatever that nonsense meant? It's a dovish yeah, right. raise, and there was a, there was a hawkish pause followed by a dovish raise. What? The, yeah. I don't even know what that is. So, <laughs> well, to, uh, so yeah. Tom Lee's fun strap, by the way. So, I saw a, a, a graph that I think is interesting. And yeah, the source here is fun strap. That's Tom Lee. So, what they did was they took the 1982 period and the SP troughed, meaning it hit its low August 12th of 1982. And then for the next 37 days, it was up 19%. Volcker, October 5th, 1982, declares victory, meaning, you know, we did it. We, we, uh, we whipped inflation. And what he shows is afterwards, there was continued strength. And one, two, three, four, was it, you know, probably the next seven months or so. What they've done, though, is they said, look, 2023, the trough was October 27th of 2023. And they're saying 12, 13, the day of the, the Fed meeting. Uh, from trough to the to the Fed meeting, plus thirteen or 14% over 33 days, Powell declares victory. And the question is, continued strength with a question mark. So our visit our, our visitors, our, our uh, listeners can't see this chart, Jay, but it kind of looks really similar. You know, both the, the lead up to the trough and trough to quote unquote victory. So yeah, it seems... Go market. I mean, I, I'm I'm in for this. Let's see some more strength. You're you're in for for market strength. That's let's do gotcha. it. Yeah, Let, yeah. <laughs> let's have market strength. So yeah. So the if they're going to use the Volcker example, right? They say the uh, S and P goes from, you know, what is that? One twenty. That uh, what what is yeah? One twenty to one sixty. One sixty, yeah. right? So you know, back of the envelope says that's forty points on one twenty is a thirty three percent increase. Is that mm-hmm. what Tom Lee is saying here? I don't know. Uh, I mean, so, you know, he says it's going to go from one fourteen to wherever. I guess I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I, you know. Um, Great. I, look, there's a lot of things like we're starting to see some maybe obscure comparisons uh, of, you know, some past kind of one-off scenarios. I think we saw an article the other day where uh, I think it was from Carson, which was talking about if 60% of stocks, you know, are above their 20-day moving average over the last 20 days, like, I mean, 100% of the time, the market doubles in a year. Like, there's been some very, now I'm wishing I uh, wrote those, that data points, but I shared the article with you, Derek. Uh, so correct me as I'm stalling if you want to. But essentially, what, what I'm saying is we are starting to see 
a lot of kind of obscure reasons and obscure historical references that tell you, you know, the coast is clear, right? Soft landing, this market's going to roll higher. Uh, you know, here's some data points from the past and they should help you infer for the future. I, you know, uh, markets pressing new highs is always, you know, gives you optimism and makes you feel good about the market. I don't know, like, could I have found other examples that Tom Lee is producing here where the market has had, you know, kind of a rebound after a decline related to what the Fed said, and then it didn't go up? Yeah, I'm sure I can. So, like, this, I don't know, Derek, I'm, I'm going to go back to don't believe everything you read on the internet as you started us out today and say, here's a single data point. I'm certainly not going to change my investment thesis because of this. Sorry to be a naysayer. All right. Well, you just told me not to believe anything I read on the internet. I'm going to read an article you passed me, and it was an extremely rare stock signal with a 100% accuracy rate. This is the one you were just referencing. is flashing yes. and points to record highs in 2023. Ryan Dietrich, who is the, uh, the analyst, noted that uh, 60% of all components in the S&P hit a new 20-day high. This is a breath thrust type uh, indicator. And basically since 1972, this rare signal has flashed 15 times, now counting last week's signal. The S&P was higher a year later, 100% of the time after the signal flashed, generating average return of 18%. So there you have it, Jay. 100% of the time, right? We're, all, we're good. 100% of the time. It works every time. Yeah. It, <laughs> Sorry. I think he says in the, the quote from Anchorman, right? 60% of the time, it works every time. That's right. Uh, yeah, I had to throw in a reference there. I, I uh, yeah. So look again. I know I sent that to you, uh, and we read it together. But I don't think mm -hmm. that you know it's just an example of some obscure kind of data points that we're putting out there. So yeah, like, well, are markets going to go higher over time? I think you and I would say yes. You don't need to give me this one-off weird thing to to prove that to me. Do I know it's going to happen in the exact next few days? Doesn't matter, right? I'm not timing the market. Right. I'm invested when I say I, the way we talk to our clients, right, the way we talk to, uh, you know, we talk about planning. It's not about the next 37 days. It's not about the next 100 days. It's about what's going on on your plan and over time. So, yes, of course, we're going to stay invested in the market. It's a decision, actually, that you and I made uh, along with our investment committee early on in the year. Right. Which was, you know, at the time, the recession was imminent and pretty much guaranteed. And we said it doesn't matter our strategies that are designed to be invested in the market are invested for the longer term. So we're going to stay in the market. We're going to stay bullish. And so we did, right? We kept our assets in the market. We didn't draw anything out. We didn't say, ooh, let's just run to treasuries and be safe, right? I mean, that, but for clients where that was appropriate, it's fine, but it was generally speaking, stay invested in the market. Markets generally go up. I love it that there's more data that points to that. But this kind of, you know, again, obscure information is not going to change my you know, our base thesis and approach, right? Nothing has changed for us at this no, point. No, we buy, we buy and we hedge and uh, we listen to everything on the internet, apparently. All right, Jay. So another thing from the internet, and this, this shouldn't surprise people. Uh, let's, let's maybe go the, I don't want to say the bear case, but the contrarian case, AAII survey, which is the American Association of Individual Investors. They do these sur uh, surveys and this is the bull minus bear spread. And they survey people and their individual investors. And no surprise, the market's coming up towards all-time highs again. And it's the most bullish people have been since 
well, 2021, the last time we were at uh, really all-time highs. So I, I think just, just it's it's not surprising because it's hard. And, and people are, when the market's doing re- really well, whether somebody's filling out a risk questionnaire or whether filling out a survey, they're more apt to say, yeah, I'd like to be invested and I think the market's going to do better. When, when things are really bad, probably when they should be maybe adding some, some stuff on the sidelines into the markets, they say, oh, I want nothing to do with it right now. You know, leave me in cash. So I don't know. This is, might be a little contrarian, but maybe it's just catching this continued wave of, yeah, everything's good. Markets. Uh, yeah, no, I would agree. This is a, definitely a contrarian indicator. When you look at when this thing makes its peaks and troughs, right? The high, you're right. The previous high was 20, and this might, might even be a little higher than where we are today, was, you know, 2021. And then, you know, the most recent low was, oh, guess what? October, it looks like Q4 of 2022. So this essentially is a reflection of sentiment, in my opinion. And are, are markets up and people are bullish? Yes. Guess what? So this indicator is, I don't know if it necessarily means the market is going to turn down, but, uh, you know, just in October, like two months ago, and I'm looking at this, or maybe it was September, you know, it was at a level that we saw during the pandemic of bearish. So mm-hmm. I don't know, this seems again, a little schizophrenic. It could definitely be a contrarian indicator, right? That, um, you could take a look at, but you know, we also haven't made a you know an all-time high in this thing. So people could get even more bullish from here, and then that would be fine. It's you know that's the trick about contrarian indicators. It's like, hey, when everybody says one thing, you should go the other way, but you got to know when to go the other way. That's a hard thing about being a contrarian, right? So do you mean like twenty-eight out of twenty-nine leading economists who said we'd have a recession in two thousand twenty-three? That type of <laughs> <laughs> that, that yes, that kind of a contrarian. Uh, everybody's on the same side of the trade. You want to be on the other side. All right, hey, look. All right, so here's a question. I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna throw an ad hoc at you. Besides the market and like a fear in the market, which I know we're gonna talk about in a minute. What's the other obvious contrarian indicator? The like that the trade that everybody's on the same side right now. What is it? Is it Rates are going down. Is that the trade that everyone's on the side of? Or is it- I, I think that's fair. Everyone, quote unquote, everyone knows rates are coming down. That's what you hear right now. Yeah, that's yeah, it's popular. I, it, yeah, I feel it. It reminds me of I'm going back years here, like 2013. You know, 2012. Everyone, hey, rates are going up. Uh, sorry, you, uh, so they have to come off, uh, and it took a long, long time for rates to move. Right. Uh, we stayed low for a long, long time. Right. You're talking about post-financial crisis. Rates were low, low, low. Everyone said, you know, because we remember there were a lot of products too that were hedged interest rate products where they'd hedge rates going up and investors would hold these, you know, three, four, five years and they'd go, they just waste money on hedges because rates never went up in hindsight, you know, would have been a good idea if rates went up. But I agree, Jay. I think that's, I think everyone says the dollar is going to be lower too. Now, not as many people trade the dollar or things like that, but conventional wisdom right now is dollars going lower, interest rates are going lower, and the economy is going to soften. What's the the du jour prediction now? Q2 of 24, but it's going to be a, a short one. Apparently, we're going to be lowering rates before that, according to the Fed front features. I guess. 
I don't know. I'm going to throw another ad hoc at you. You know, okay. I was talking to uh, a client uh, this week about rates, and his feeling was, well, even if we don't cut, even if there isn't a cut in rates, they're not going to raise rates, right? So why would I not just buy an ETF like like a, 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 a TLT? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, like TLT, right? Why would I not just buy TLT, Jay? Because if rates are going to be flat uh, or down, like I can't really lose on that trade, right? And I had to correct him, and I would, I, I and, and I don't, I, I, I don't want to spoil it here, Derek. Like, what would you say? To a client who said, oh, look, TLT, you know, it can only get better for me because rates will come down and that way TLT will go up. I mean, the question is, if the economy is really strong, if we have good economy and you you would say, OK, well, let's say the Fed raise lowers 100 basis points and which would bring to four, four and a quarter. OK, so then you got to ask yourself, what's the 30 year bond going to be priced at? Is it going to ah, be priced exactly what it is? Right. Is yes. it going to be or. Are you going to get a, a term premium, as they say uh, now? And is that going to go to six when short rates are four? Like normally there's, it's not inverted. This is weird. Short rates should not be that much more than long rates. And even in a non-inverted curve, you're going to say, well, pay me for the risk of, of buying bonds that are going out further. So that's the thing, Jay. Yeah, I mean, that, that was um, the point to that client, which was, Look, even though you could be right that the Fed won't change rates, you could be wrong on the direction of the 20-year Treasury, which is what TLT kind of averages, right? Yeah, 20 sure. plus. You could be wrong on that. And, you know, the the curve can, you know, revert, you know, get back to the normal curve where farther out in the curve you go, meaning the longer in duration on the bond, the higher the interest rate, which would mean even as Fed rates are coming down, the longer end of the curve could go up and then you could lose. So I, I just thought I'd bring that up because we're talking about rates and bullish and, the, and, you know, where everybody, you know, the bet that everybody's on the side of the TLT trade, which is, by the way, one of the most popular uh, ETFs to trade, uh, can still be very dangerous when you when you take it to consideration duration and rate curve changes. Yeah. Now, if somebody was to say, hey, Jay, I'm going to buy a one year treasury because I think, you know what, rates are not going to go up from here. Well, to be honest with you, you pretty much, uh, you know, it's not too much interest rate risk at that short end of the curve. But I would say, yeah, that's right. If you buy a, a bond right now, pretty much you should expect to mature at, you know, at par, which is $1,000 or $100 uh, price per bond. And you collect any coupons or you collect any difference between what it's trading at now. And But no, I think, I think you're right, Jay. I mean, it's the longer end. I mean, now you're getting into picking the spots on the yield curve. And uh, I can tell you one thing, even some really smart people on Wall Street got that way wrong this year. So uh, I mean, the ones that. that put their banks out of business, those guys? Uh, well, them or said January of 23, our pick for the year is long duration treasuries. All right, oh, well, yeah. yeah. Oops. It's hard. All right, so here's a couple other things. I do want to talk about VVIX and VIX because I we saw some interesting things there today. Uh, just a quick hit, the Atlanta Fed GDP now estimate, which is a now cast, every bit of data that comes in, they're adjusting their model for Q4, which won't be released until the end of January of 24. It ticked up again. So now I, I eyeballing this, it's about 2.5% is the annualized rate estimation for Q4. 
this GDP is confounding people. You know, they, they thought it was shrinking. They thought it would shrink. It hasn't. But let me throw some, uh, what's it? Bug in the ointment? Is that is that the right thing? Fly, I don't know. Fly in the ointment? Fly, yeah, fly. I guess, you know, fly in a bug or... I mean, well, it could, could be bug. different. Great. It's, it's a it's a bug. I mean, would you rather have a bug or a fly in, in your ointment? I don't know. I don't want any anything in my ointment except not, ointment. Yeah, I would think ointment is uh, is better unencumbered of, of bugs. <laughs> All right. So if I want to put a, you know, like a negative thing, uh, we got to talk about advanced real retail and food services sales. So anytime you hear the word real, it means adjusted for inflation. You keep seeing, and it's always interesting to me, Jay, that some things we put out like GDP, that's real GDP, and then it's annualized. Other things we put out are not real, not meaning they're not real, they're, just, they're nominal, meaning not after inflation. And they might be annualized, they might not be annualized. So a lot of times on CNBC, you get retail sales, it's not real retail sales. And the point of this chart is, before the last three recessions, you actually saw real retail sales trading sideways a little bit, or I shouldn't say trading, you know, the chart looks a little bit sideways. And I think it was March of 21 was the the recent, uh, the last high in real retail sales. So I don't know. I mean, you could say 2020 and that whole period kind of threw everything for a loop. But, you know, if I'm looking for dark clouds, here, there you go. If you're bearish. Yeah, I, I, I look, I don't, I think we all know that that uh, pandemic period in 2020 was caused by something non, you know, the, the economic forecasts, if they happen to predict that, just got lucky in my opinion. But when you look at the 08 and the 01 recessions, you're absolutely right. This, uh, this, this data point trends sideways, right? This advanced uh, real retail and food service sales number goes sideways. Uh, what I don't think, and I, I get it that this is accounting for inflation, but I still don't think it accounts for necessary behavior. And we have been sideways on this number for, you know, over a year. It's actually slightly lower, Derek, right? So it is. when I, when I, when I, when I look at this, uh, you know, I, you know, I don't necessarily know it's predictive of and I would have believed it more if they weren't, you know, pointing to the uh, 2020 period as like, oh, this predicted that. Nothing predicted that, right? So, well, the yield curve, DJ, was inverted in 2019. Oh, Stop. Come on, it's Stop. you know, it's a win. A win is a win. I'm sorry, you got to give the yield curve a a win on that one. It is what it is. <laughs> even a even a even a blind squirrel gets nut. Broken a broken clock is right twice a day. You uh, fine. I'll give you that. Put one. the eggs in the all the eggs in the basket or whatever that frame <laughs> six and a half dozen. So I, uh, I, don't, I know. don't know. I look. I mean, flying ointment here. Meh. I'm I'm like okay with that. I mean, I do think people are kind of cutting back some of that spending. I do think they got a little less money in their bank account. I do think you know all of the stimulus is starting to run its course. So, you know, none of that's all worked into this, right? We went through a very unique period from February 2020 till today. We're still working through all of that, where interest rates are uh, and, and everything, you know, the, the flooding of money into the economy and consumer spending and then inflation and all supply right. chain. Fair enough. All Fair that. enough. Come on. Like, okay, thanks. I'll Fair just, enough. Man, again, I'm not, uh, I'm, still, yeah. I'm negative Nelly today, dude. Sorry. Well, I've, I've been really bullish except for these last ones. But let's let's think about what, the VIX is showing us. And 
speaking about, you know, working itself out and figuring out the, the regime, uh, you and I have always said that lower volatility doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be a spike. Uh, we do look at different measures of volatility to try and tell us that, but it's low volatility begets more low volatility. Jay, today the VIX itself was down to 12.28. That's the spot VIX, the one you see on TV. It was down about 1.6%, which by the way is only 20 cents. Something interesting happened though in the VVIX index, which of course is the volatility of the options on the VIX. And it went up to 88.04. That was almost a 9% increase today, gained about 7.2 points. So Jay, we have a day where the VIX was lower. Uh, Yesterday, the VVIX was unchanged. Maybe it saved it all for today. But it seems like when we think about the premium levels on VIX options, which are buying options or selling options, not on the VIX index that you see on TV. They're actually buying or selling options on the VIX futures contracts. They're, they got more expensive today. Let's just put it that. But I think we should talk about this because I, I noticed it. I know you and I didn't even talk about this prior to the recording the podcast here today, but when I mentioned it, immediately you said, oh, no, I saw that too. Yeah. So, you know, we watched that that uh, that index, the VIX, because um, it, it indicates where money is flowing to on uh, options on the VIX, right? And so when that pops, it means people are willing to pay more for uh, options. And I'm trying to, I'm taking a look on the VIX option chain, right, where they were, you know, trading today. And there was obviously, you know, kind of the normal one week out trading uh, where there was a lot of volume on, uh, you know, the calls at the 15 strike on the on the calls on VIX. So what does that mean when someone's buying a, fix, a 15 strike call and they're paying, uh, you know, let's see what the price is on this thing here. I mean, they're paying 12 cents, right? So they got a week that they're, you know, looking for the VIX to be above 15. So that's a, a significant kind of increase from 12.2 to uh, to 15. They're only paying 12 cents for that, right? So it really wasn't very expensive. But where the real volume was, was uh, you got to January 24th, which is about a month away, right? When you take a look a month out, a lot of the volume was on the 17s. And they were paying 80 cents for that if they were buying it. So what does that mean? 180,000 contracts traded there. So that's a a significant amount of flows to taking a position that the VIX will close above 17 uh, in 30 days. So that's from a 12 to a 15. And even, you know, based on a lot of the metrics that we watch, Derek, we would say that would be, you know, a fairly uh, extreme move, right, To, to move uh, uh, that far. I mean, certainly the VIX could do it. The VIX could do that in a day if it wanted to. But, you know, that um, 50% appreciation in the VIX is where a lot of the money was flowing into today. So uh, it's telling you there's somebody out there uh, bracing for a sell-off or, you know, just taking a speculative uh, a speculative uh, uh, wager on an increase in volatility. It's always interesting, too, that, you know, we'll see these big uh, pockets of, I'll say, volume come up where people buying index op, you know, options on the VIX. It's, it feels like when the VIX gets lower, 
there are people who naturally say, well, it becomes a cheap hedge. And I think you made this point a few weeks ago where when VIX is at 20, you say, well, you know, maybe they'll buy the cheap options. They got to go to the 30s. And 30 is still a pretty good level. At a 12, you know, and a half or slightly north of 12 VIX, as you said, I mean, it, it's you can start to go in these these lower uh, double-digit areas for the VIX, and it's not too expensive. So if you get any sort of spike, but I still say, Jay, and especially the the few weeks before Christmas and the and the holiday season, we typically see the kink in the VIX where there is lower volatility, especially before the holidays. So I don't know. I mean, I, I understand why people do it. But just because the VIX is low doesn't mean it's going to pop. It's, it's, it's not, it doesn't really work that way. No, and it could stay low for longer than, you know, people expect. Uh, we, you and I are in the camp, I believe, that, uh, not to speak for you, but I think you agree, that we, it appears that we're starting a new kind of regime in the VIX, right, where we talk about the VIX kind of stays in ranges for years at a time. Well, this, this recent move that we've seen here now, I think we saw the VIX the other day below 12 intraday. I'm not sure if it actually closed there. Sorry. But it, but this could be something where the VIX gets down to 10 and hovers between 13 and 10 or maybe 15 and 10 for quite a while. That has absolutely happened before. So it's not unfathomable for the uh, for the VIX to stay low. And what, what does that mean? That means uh, VIX low means people are not willing to speculate on options in the S&P, right? So it actually, you know, it's really, it's it's great for option traders that like to use, uh, you know, long options for hedging or even long options for, you know, upside capture. As we started the conversation, we we're talking about long calls, or at least early on. Uh, I, you know, look, a VIX lower regime means it's a little harder to make money selling options versus buying them. Maybe it's a little less punitive on time decay, but... Uh, it could remain low for a long time. Nothing says it can't. Look, we we took we like to take advantage of it when we see it drop to this level. I think we talked about either last week or a few weeks ago that we took advantage of low cost of hedging and added, uh, you know, added hedges to our to our portfolio. Do I wish I did that this week rather than last week while the market is you know a little higher? Of course. But again, we're not timing the market here. It, it was a good time to lock in gains, a good time to rehedge, and it was an affordable way to do it. So, I, you know, I, I just I do think it's interesting. We do watch the difference between the VIX and the VIX and to see that, you know, this I would I would call this speculative or institutional money usually, especially at that size. Right. Trading one hundred and eighty thousand VIX contracts, you know, spending uh spending 80 cents a pop, you know, that is, you know, that is, those are institutions putting on a large position, uh, uh, you know, to to, to effectively protect against the down move. And I'm not sure if it's going to come and that's okay if it doesn't come, because you would assume they've got something that's offsetting that that's going to make the money if the market continues to drift higher. And I haven't, we haven't called this the wall of worry yet, right? Because we're not really climbing a wall of worry. We're climbing, but is is there a wall of worry right now, Derek? Like I don't. It doesn't feel like there's a, there's a worry out there. Well, we'll start to hear that that phrase, I'm sure. But I mean, it's the same worries before. I mean, it's the same. Oh, the recession's coming. If we have a shallow recession, then we're fine. If it's a deep recession, then we're not fine. You know, the other shoe's going to drop. So I I don't think it's the same as the past where. You literally have people saying, you know, oh, we're climbing a wall worry, but it's the same stuff. Like 
when you watch CNBC, the arguments of, oh, be cautious, you know? And by the way, you still have people who are saying, I like the market, but I'd rather buy it cheaper. To, to those people, you could have bought it cheaper. You didn't. So I don't know. I mean, there's always something to worry about. That's why we hedge. And when you hedge, you, you have to worry less about all that stuff because you're not trying to pick the markets. But I don't know. I mean, this market right now feels like there's not worry, but there's not enough exuberance yet. It's, it reminds me of 2013 a little bit, Jay. And that's actually the last VIX environment. If I was to say, what, what does this VIX environment, VVIX environment remind me of? It's 2013, Jay. Through 2017, 2018, right? Yeah. That lasted quite a few years. That's yeah, right. That was a long, a long period of time. But yeah. Uh, look, when you look at things like GDP, when you look at the, uh, you know, the sentiment that we talked about, right? Like, yeah, things can continue to stay, to stay good. But I don't know. We we um, uh, we had a conversation with uh, one of our advisors today, and we were saying, look, we rehedged, and you know, we're protected on in one of our strategies from kind of at the money to down minus twenty percent. And his immediate reaction was. Yeah, but you don't think that's going to happen, right? And no, we, we don't, but I don't know what's going to cause that to happen, right? So again, we take that with our hedged equity strategies. We definitely take the approach of always be hedged. Don't time the market on that. Take advantage of it when it's cheap to put it on. So, yep, yep. that's kind of where, where we landed on that. But I'm, I'll, let's, we'll keep talking about this VIX and VVIX thing because it's almost like they're saying, yeah, you can buy some VIX options, but you're not getting them cheap. They were too cheap and we adjusted. So that's the new reality of it. Uh, Jay, I want to get to some recommendations this week. And uh, did, did you have anything? Did you did you watch anything? I got one. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so I started watching on uh, Amazon Prime uh, Reacher, which is the second season of mm-hmm. that. The first three of those are out. Uh, I watched the first two episodes. Pretty good little, you know, flashes of cheesiness in it, but still enjoyable. And uh, I will continue to to watch that. Uh, I did watch the the Bosch Legacy. So I, I got that, you know, that's on Freebie, which is on that weird Amazon-owned <clears throat> streaming channel that has commercials. I thought it was really good. Yeah, Bosch is always quality, always quality on Bosch. Yeah. Agreed. So if, if you are, you know, someone, if you haven't seen it, start on the, the ones that are on Amazon Prime. There's about seven seasons. And then last two seasons have been this quote unquote Bosch legacy sort of after the, the other. Um, but my recommendation this week, I, I randomly was on Behind Enemy Lines with uh, uh, Owen Wilson. I think it was Owen Wilson is, is in that movie. It was on again, Gene Hackman. Uh, about a pilot who gets shot down. He's behind enemy lines. I think it's solid. So there you go. It's 2001. I can't believe it was that long ago. I guess 2001 <laughs> is 20. It's coming on 23 years ago. How does that happen? But yeah, Owen Wilson, Gene Hackman, and some other people. So there you have it. Have you seen that? Uh, I, ha- I have. Yep. Uh, it was a while ago. I'll give you another throwback that came up on one of our calls this morning. Mm-hmm. You ready for this one? Yeah, strange brew. Oh boy, I think that was in the eighties, right? About the Canadians and take off hoser, eh? So I nineteen eighty three, actually. Uh, wow, um, I, either you looked that up, or you wouldn't surprise me. You're the smartest person on earth. <laughs> no, I, I knew it was the early eighties. I did look it up. Rick Moranis, though, isn't that? Yeah, that was funny. As I guess as 
I, I won't date myself, but I was not out of high school yet when that was on. So there you go. Yep. <laughs> All right, Jay. Uh, we'll leave it there. Plenty to watch and learn this week in the markets. And uh, we'll, we'll just wave at Jay Powell, say, keep doing what you're doing, Jay, I guess. Yeah. Or don't. Third time, I'm going to say Tommy Cutlets. All right. See you, everyone.